Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from Khan Games. I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we're here once again to talk about homebrews. So in the past, we've discussed some programming stuff, and we've discussed, of course, gameplay things. And this week, we thought we would talk about sort of one of the other avenues that a lot of people get into the homebrew scene, and that is in terms of collecting. Yes. You were a hardcore NES collector at one point, weren't you, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I was trying to acquire every NES game ever made. Um, I think there are 776 titles if you combine licensed and unlicensed during the NES's lifespan. I got over 700. I was closing in, but uh, then Brian came out with the power pack, and I was like, why do I have over 700 of these cartridges laying in my living room? Because I was moving a lot at the time. Like I moved from Florida to Utah and then to Texas and to Colorado, and I was like toting these cartridges around, and it's uh, it's a lot of work. So I was like, I could have 700 of these cartridges or one of these cartridges because all I all I really care about is playing the games. I mean, it was cool to walk in the room and see all of them. It's pretty imposing, but you know, at the end of the day, if you just want to play the games, it's it's a little overboard to have all of the physical copies. So Kevin's sort of like a recovering addict when it comes to collecting. He, he's, he's been down that road. He doesn't want to go again. Uh, he's been known to sell off his homebrews, things like that. Because uh, you did licensed and unlicensed stuff, not as much. The homebrew scene hadn't really taken off back then, if I'm getting right. the dates correct. Yeah, and you know, at the beginning of the homebrew scene's sort of lifespan, I, I did go out of my way to try to collect them all also, but... There came a certain point where I had to take a step back and try to decide, you know, which of these games do I really care about? Because, you know, there were a lot of games coming out, and and these days it seems like there's a lot coming out, and I just don't have the money or the time to sit down and play them all. Yeah, when I got back into NES things in late 2012, early 2013, I... I sort of entered it from the avenue of programming, collecting, and gaming all at once. And so my goal was always to pick up everything. Uh, And that was sort of after a lot of games had started to come out. And there had been a lot of things that Kevin had put out and some other people. And it sort of, there was a back catalog of of quite a number of things to get. And then also to stay on top of all the new releases. And so it it was... fun and interesting to me because I never really did the licensed collecting. I figured that was well outside of my price range to begin with, but uh, you kind of view things a little differently when you look at them through these different lenses. When you're when you're programming a game, you know, you, you can buy a game and, and analyze it and play it and appreciate it in a different way than when you're actually like just wanting a really, really great experience to play something. I think you and I are in a unique position too, because we're friends with a lot of the people doing these things. And, you know, on top of that, we maybe not friends, but we, we interact with a lot of the people, you know, making these games and, and, and putting them out. So you want to sort of support 
all of your friends and, and everyone that, cause you and I both know how much time and effort goes into making these things. So, um, you, you want to support and, and, you know, showing people, you know, with dollars that you care about what they do, I think is a pretty impactful thing. Yeah, I, back then I didn't know any of you guys, though. I just, I was really intrigued by, like, the, there was this whole scene going on, and I could, whereas, like, with, with the NES, the license library, it was, you know, 700 and something games to go after, and with homebrew stuff, it was like, well, there's only, like, 40 right now, and if I really just buckle down, I can get all <laughs> those 40, and, I, and if I just stay on top of everything. And so... That's that's what I did in terms of Well you came you you're you have a pretty good amount of them. Did did you get all of them that you wanted to chase? Well, I want to chase everything, Kevin. Well, I, I know you do, but <laughs> I'm missing you, a few. I'm missing Not many few. though. You're you're not missing many. Oh, last I well, checked. Part of the thing with homebrew collecting versus like licensed or unlicensed collecting is like the parameters just are not as clear. You can end up collecting one of every game, you can end up collecting one of every edition. Uh, you can just end up collecting certain ones from certain people. You kind of have that freedom to sort of set your own uh, standards, and you can also even go so far as to determine what is a homebrew and what is not on your own, uh, which is something we talked about back in episode one and came up on the forums in the last day or two in terms of there's this... Uh, Super Nintendo game, golly, what is it called? Um, oh shoot, something fighting. Uh, anyways, it's a fighting game, and it was done by some ex SNK staffers, and they, you know, they're professionals. They were in the industry back in the '90s. They're not just some guys in a basement doing this, uh, you know, on their free time. Even though it is their free time, and it's not, you know, their real job. And so there's a bit of debate going on about, well, is it a homebrew or is it not? And <laughs> it it's cases like that that expand or narrow our definition of what a homebrew is or isn't. And at many times with cases like this, it comes down to a personal definition of, you know, are you is that how you're going to class it or are you going to class it a different way? Right. You kind of have that option. Uh, unholy Night, that's what it's called. Um, yeah, and there really isn't a right or wrong answer when it comes to something like that like you said it is personal preference um but on top of what's that with that one anyways yeah yeah i mean a lot of them are pretty you know cut and dry but that one definitely i could see to where there would be a little bit of room for debate um but on top of that difference you know between collecting licensed and unlicensed with homebrews they're constantly still coming out so you're never there, you know, there, there's not a set number that you're going to go after because that number is going to keep increasing as time goes on. Which is half the fun to me. Oh, yeah, because they're getting better and better. Uh, many of them are, and other times, you know, you're still supporting somebody achieving their dreams, so it's still interesting in that regard. It's a new individual who's putting out something different, and, you know, it's their dream, and that's... Yeah, and people are people are starting, you know, to learn how to program at different times. So there's people just getting into it now that are at the level that, you know, you and I were five years ago. So, um, yeah, it, it's cool to sort of be there as people progress and get better. And it's like watching your children grow up. Yeah, it is in a way. I remember when I started, I, it felt like, you know, the first game had come out. 
almost a decade before and it was like jeez i really missed the boat like i'm an old man here <laughs> or young man whatever and now it's kind of flipped like people just come into it and out of it and it's a mm-hmm. very fluid community and yeah people are asking programming questions and you're jumping in there answering them oh every now and again i don't too too often but <laughs> i always feel like somebody else has a better answer so i try not to clog it up with my functional but probably less than perfect ways so with collecting you are one of the chief culprits what do you mean because a lot of games are not just put out as sort of an indefinite you can buy this whenever but they're done in limited quantities and in limited editions we'll say well yeah i mean each individual homebrewer when they release a game they have to take a step back and make a decision. You know, what kind of money do I have to invest in this release? And for some people it's, you know, 20 cartridges and that's all they can put out. And that's that, you know, some people can put out a hundred, some people go for larger, you know, 350 complete in box copies. So every different game that comes out, uh, there's sort of a different limiting factor on just how rare it is. So with your very first release, Frogger, you did a regular edition that was sort of willy-nilly. You could pick it up whenever on Retro USB. But you also did, what was it, 10 or 11? Pink Lady? Uh, 10. 10? Okay. They were Pink Lady Frogger, nice wood box, clear cartridge shell, a bunch of bells and whistles. Walk us through that. Well. If you remember. (laughs) And you know that my memory is definitely not the greatest, but um, back then, you know, it it was one of the first homebrews that was sort of released in, you know, in a, in a manner to where multiple people could, could sort of jump on board and get it. Um, But with that being said, there weren't a lot of games that were doing special editions back then. Um, And at the time, if my memory serves, there were a couple reproduction games uh, that the Nolan brothers were putting out and they would do what they called a limited edition to where they would sort of release like a special box and, and they sort of tried to play it up a little bit, but um, it didn't really seem at the time that the special editions were very special. So, I wanted to do something creative because, you know, I went to art school. Um, I have a graphic design background. I, I just, I try to do things that people might think artistically are nice to look at. So um, I used to spend a lot of time going to craft stores because uh, the girl I was dating at the time, she was into crafting and, and I would be dragged there a lot of the time to sort of look at different fabrics and this and that. And I was, you know, bored a lot of the time, but, um, since I was forced to go there so often, um, I was familiar with, you know, the types of stuff they had. So I knew that they had these little, I think they're like cigar boxes. Um, but I think, you know, I, I thought, what can I do with this? I can turn this into something pretty cool. Um, So I just, you know, sort of bought those and, and thought, how can I make them creative? How can I make them special? And I thought it would be really cool to design a themed box, taking the lady frog from the game. Cause she's just some random frog in the game that you can pick up to, to bring home to get bonus points. And I thought, man, it'd be really cool to name 
this special limited edition after this pink lady frog. So painted the boxes pink and it really sort of popped. Um, I got the, uh, the artist, one of my artist friends, Dave to uh, draw some individual sketches, different sketches for each of the 10 boxes. And I sort of just did everything I could to, to sort of make it pop. Um, And as time went on, it sort of turned into this uh, sort of mythical release that, that was hard to attain. You know, the people, the 10 people that got copies, they didn't want to part with them, you know, that they, they really consider them special. And I didn't keep one for myself cause I never do, but I'm sort of kicking myself for that. Cause they were, <laughs> uh, I think they're worth over a thousand dollars now. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, they've dropped a little bit. I think the last one sold for like six seventy or something. That's still ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Considering, you know, it's, uh, they they weren't sold originally for that price at all. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, you gave away most of them, didn't you? Yeah, I gave away you know the ones to the people that helped me put the game out. Um, I think I only auctioned like two two of them. Do you remember? Two or three, if I yeah. recall. It's crazy. Um, I know Ross got one at, at camp out that year. Or oh, and I think I gave one to someone who won a competition. Yeah, that was Berger, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, But little did I know that I was sort of setting the standard to where releases in the future would come out with these limited edition, sort of all the bells and whistles and stuff added in releases. It's kind of cool. Yeah, well, and your next release was the classic fabled <laughs> sneak and peek, and from the get-go, that one was limited to 100 copies. Yeah, and and I knew, you know, for Frogger, it wasn't limited in with the regular edition. It was sold on Retro USB, and, and I think they sold, I probably sold 600 copies before the, I decided to just stop because we ran through all the boxes. Um, but for sneak and peek, I knew that it wasn't a good game. I mean, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and say it. So I, hard it, on yourself. It, well, it, it's a game that I grew up playing on Atari with my friend Keith. And for a child, you know, growing up and playing hide and seek on a video game in your house to even, you know, to even talk about it, it sounds ridiculous. But I have such fond memories playing that game with my friend that I thought, you know what, this would be a cool game to sort of bring over to the NES and, uh, Dave, who did the sketches for Frogger, I had him do the graphics for the game. And thinking about, you know, coming out with the game with updated graphics, I thought was a cool idea. So, um, but I knew it wasn't going to be for everyone. And I knew that it wasn't better than, you know, an arcade port. So I reduced the price when I released the game to a, a pretty affordable amount. And I decided, you know what, I'm only going to do a hundred of these because, I don't know. I I honestly didn't think it would sell more than that. So I just set the number at a hundred and it came out and they all sold. And now people are looking for it and it's hilarious to me. Well, it's even equal more hilarious because you can get it on your uh, foreign one, but they want that original cart. So <laughs> around the same time of sneak and peek and Frogger, uh, Sivak, who we did his battle kit in episode one, He'd also released uh, a few limited editions with uh, his Geminim, Siamond, and uh, Mystic Pillars. 
And then Al Bailey had also done some limited versions of Sudoku that had sold out and whatnot. And it started to create this sort of sea of different releases, different variations on the same release, that over time people started to pick up. At first it was, you know, they would resell for you know double what somebody paid or a little more than what somebody paid but by like 2013 four or five years later they were going for you know triple quadruple the initial price and some of them you know go for way more these days but it created this sort of collector community around it because there would be people that would buy to resell there would be people that would buy because they were interested and wanted to keep but then they would eventually get out and just a bunch of different folks, you know, just like normal NES or video game collecting. Like, everybody collects for different reasons. But there were so few copies that the a lot of the prices jumped around, and they trade hands so rarely, a lot of these. And I think it really created a divide in the community because it, it became apparent, you know, that the people with the deepest pockets were the ones that were going to wind up with these. So... The people that actually wanted them to play, there was a little bit of resentment there. Um, but it turned into this avenue to where we as developers, we sort of needed to put them out because monetarily it only made sense to, because that was the main way that we were being compensated for for putting these games out. So for us, it was almost essential. But then over time, with everyone doing it, um, I think it just sort of started rubbing people the wrong way because it looked like we were only doing it for the money. Um, so there's there's a little bit of, I think, weirdness there now to where the market for limited editions is down. Um, oh, but it I collapsed think, over the last yeah, year. But I think the collectability is still there because people are still really putting out some cool limited edition stuff. Well, it comes and it goes, and it's interesting that you said, you know, there was that resentment with the people with the, the deep pockets and stuff, because when I came into collecting for it, I I could see that that sort of was going on, but I also knew that I had, like, no money, and so I just was ex very patient with everything. You know, I'd sit there and refresh the sales forum and snipe stuff right away and get it, and then, you know, I'd work private deals, things like that, so I built it up without having to pay a lot of the ridiculous prices. Uh, which, to me, that was fun. I, I went to wanted to just throw down a ton of money at at a problem. Oh, and I do remember in those uh, those early years, once after I think it was after Sudoku, somebody stated very publicly, like anything that somebody can just make at any time in their garage is never going to become collectible in any way. <laughs> and that just uh, that's that's not the case because people haven't. You know, you made those ten lady froggers. You haven't gone back and made more just because people wanted more. Like, you know, you're sort of done once you've done a run, and that's sort of the brewer's honor, and you you go on with things. Yeah, and you have to stand by your word because once you dip back into that pool, I think you lose everyone's respect pretty much immediately. Well, and it really wouldn't be the same thing if you tried to make a few more. You know, ten years later, like it's not people would still go after the first 10 not those last five it's it's a different release for many of us that probably comes back to one's own parameters though because i'm very particular with how i uh organize my releases and such <laughs> well i think i think everyone would agree with you like if if someone oh, no, went back would. and 
<laughs> you, you don't think if, if I went back and made 10 more that people would be more inclined to collect the original 10? Well, in this case, perhaps, but like when, so like with Assimilate, there's been like five different releases and, you know, there were like the second and third one was by the same person, but the label was slightly different. Mm. And then I think between like the third and fourth one, it was, you can't even tell the difference in the label. You have to actually know who originally owned them and which runs they bought them off of and how they're different and stuff like that. Yeah. It's just one of those things where, like, how how far how how crazy do you want to be about uh, being a stickler for original releases? Oh, let's get nuts! <laughs> Signed certificate copies of yes, this is from this person. Oh man! So we want to talk about a game today, don't we? Oh, I guess I could talk about collecting all day. <laughs> what game are we going to talk about? So the game we're going to talk about this week is the Homebrew World Champs 2012, uh, also known as the HBWC, which is, it was a compilation cart done back in 2012. It features five different homebrews, and they're arranged sort of like the Nintendo World Champs from, from way back in the day, where play a little bit of one game and it goes to the next and it goes to the next and the the games on it are seagull slappin chunk out virus cleaner and parts of ultimate frogger so we are going to talk with uh paul uh paul Sargent, just known as paul uh, around the forums and the internet he did a lot of the planning and setting up with that and sort of the the coordinating of these games by five different people so uh you there paul I'm here. All right. Uh, oh, and Paul is also known for doing things like he hosted the famous campouts back in the day and some other activities. But uh, you sort of were in charge of this uh, Homebrew World Champs project, weren't you? Yeah, it was just kind of a random idea we had once upon a time, um, six or seven years ago at this point. Uh, I was just kind of talking with someone one night about, you know, making a, a more modern or just a different version of the Nintendo World Championship. And um, the original idea was to use games that everybody loves, Punch-Out, Contra. Um, but Bunny Boy uh, pointed out that uh, that's a quick way to get sued. <laughs> so there was no way that we were going to be able to use any kind of games that we grew up with. So it would have to be all new games. And uh, so the idea was born and... Luckily, I know a bunch of wonderful programmers who write wonderful Nintendo games that are really fun to play, and uh, everybody worked together, and the idea was born and actually worked. So how did you choose what games were going to be on it? That was honestly kind of, it just fell into place more than being chosen. Your game, Frogger, um, I was one of the beta testers on it, so I was really familiar with it, and I really liked how that game was and thought that that it would be a good fit. ZZap was kind enough to just offer both Seagull's Revenge and Chunk Out 2, which kind of added a puzzle element for the Chunk Out, and the Seagull's Revenge is just kind of cool pooping on people. MRN um, then chimed in and offered to redo his slapping game to add a 
another game with just a, a more wide variety of skills needed to uh, to try to get the best possible score. And then Virus Cleaner, right? Yeah, and then Rob's game. Yeah, I forget, but can't forget Rob. <laughs> that game, to me, is probably the most infuriating of the five. <laughs> but I won't dwell on that because I'll get mad. I see. So, let's see. The Homebrew World Champs came out. Uh, it's on a, a full cartridge with dip switches and all of that. And a couple years before that, that Brian had released uh, a reproduction of the Nintendo World Champs. And how did that kind of influence, or did it influence, sort of the enthusiasm for this type of cartridge? It seemed to. I mean, um, there was... You know, as soon as we announced it, and, you know, which it kind of had a botched release, let's be honest. We did a uh, limited edition set that we uh, we called it the uh, Nintendo Age Edition. We were, nobody that was involved in it really wanted to make any money off of the project. But at the same time, we wanted to raise some money for Nintendo Age to help with the server costs and, you know, just our way of giving back. So we had some complete-in-the-box versions made but we used the universal media cases instead of an actual box so we had manuals printed we had an insert printed we had cartridges made and we auctioned those off and then it was almost a full year before we actually the the card only version was released which was kind of a a sore subject with many people out on the internet that wanted to play the game but didn't want to have to fork out the money for the auctioned uh, nintendo age editions you said that it took a while for it to actually see release uh, on the cartridge, but how quickly would you say the project took programming-wise from, from start to finish? That was actually pretty quick. The original idea came late 2010, and it just kind of was just an idea for a while. We really didn't do anything with it for a while. We just kind of talked about it with like so many good projects. It uh, gets <laughs> talked a while for a while before it actually does anything. But once, once somebody stepped up, and in this case it was Bunny Boy because he was the one that was writing the the code that switched from between games one, two, three, four, and five, and also kept track of the scoring from each game. Once he actually made a post once. And said, you know, hey, this is what I need in the games. I need you to adjust your games this way. It was a matter of weeks before we had the first working ROM. So once the project had a clear path, there it was literally weeks before we were actually testing it and finding bugs and, and actually trying to get a, a releasable version of it. So Brian did the actual sort of uh, programming of it then? Yes. Each of the five games was actually edited. The original programmer of that game took the ROM that they had already made for their game and modified it to work within Brian's overall ROM, I guess. He was basically making it kind of into a multi-cart where there was multiple games on it, but it has logic that told it, go to this game once, and that game said, okay, I'm going to do this, and once that was done, it went to the next game. So Brian's game controlled the the other pieces of the smaller games. I guess is a better way to say it. 
Yeah, I seem to recall, you know, once Brian sort of gave us instructions on, okay, you need to edit your code to make it do this and this and this. It all happened really, really quick. Yeah. And I actually, is there's a, isn't there a bug in the game where I forgot to prevent my game from being paused? Actually, it is Rob's game. Ah. Virus Cleaner, if you pause the game in Virus Cleaner, and I've, I've never played around with it enough. I know somebody has, but basically if you leave Virus Cleaner paused long enough, when you get to Frogger, you can almost play indefinitely. <laughs> Midwest Gaming Classic, they had actually found the bug then and made some ridiculous scores, but game wouldn't end so they couldn't actually get to the final score screen. And I kind of didn't want to learn exactly what was up with the bug because I was a little heartbroken. <laughs> so I think we both know that feeling. <laughs> you, you, you have so much time and effort put in and it's, and it's released and then somebody's like, oh yeah, we found a bug that nobody else found. And you're like, I hate you. I hate you. So what was the kind of the hardest part of this whole project, would you say? The, the actual cartridge release. The limited edition part, you know, they were universal media cases, so there were 69 of them we made, and the universal media cases don't actually fit Nintendo games, or at least nobody had found one in 2012 yet that did perfectly. I think they do now. Universal media cases actually had to be modified to fit a Nintendo game, so I had 69 cases that I had to cut pieces of plastic out and then put the number all the inserts, number, number all the cartridges, number all the manuals, and then assemble them. And that was more work than I actually thought it was going to be, <laughs> to be honest. You know, you've got three things that you're numbering, then you've got to assemble them. And all the while, you need to be careful in keeping everything nice and pristine because you have people that are very particular about the condition of their video games. And uh, Paul's never really cared, so. Did it sell well when it came out? Nintendo Age Edition that we did to raise money actually raised over $3,000 for Nintendo Age after paying all the suppliers for the the cases and the manuals and the inserts and the actual cartridges. Once all that was paid for, Nintendo Age Edition raised over 3000 for Nintendo Age. And then once, about a year later, when the actual uh, loose cart was released, it sold a couple of hundred copies within a year. Honestly, don't know what it's sold since then. I kind of haven't bothered that man with that question because he's working <laughs> on his other projects. So you mentioned that you don't care too much about the quality of your games. Is is it true that you used to collect the crappiest copy of every game you could find? Yes, it was very fun. Um, I always cared more about having the game than how the game looked. I met so many collectors over the years that were particular about oh this game has a nick in the label or oh you can see that somebody wrote on a piece of paper on top of the label and there's a little <laughs> crease or or divot in the label if you hold it up to the light just right and and i never cared i had the game the game work that's all i cared so yeah for the crappy collection was born at one point and uh the goal was to own all the nintendo games and whatever shape I could find them in, and uh, it was fun. Didn't you have a really crappy copy of Super Mario Brothers that you got graded? Um, I still have that one, and I actually, <laughs> I actually didn't get 
get it graded. It showed up at my house one day in a box with a probably the nicest note I've ever received. I mean, it was already graded, and it was uh, Super Mario, the original Super Mario Brothers, the first one, and uh, it graded a 10, which across all of the BGA lines, both video games and comic books, and it's the lowest score of any item that that company <laughs> has ever graded. They did not include a grading sheet with it because there were so many flaws with the game that they wouldn't know where to begin with taking <laughs> points off of what. It, it has a BB hole in it um, where somebody apparently shot it over the years. It's still <laughs> sealed. Is that before you got it or after you got it? Before I got it. I refuse <laughs> to do any damage to it. It's already had a hard enough life. So you said it's sealed? It is sealed. It's confirmed legit sealed. It's never been opened. But <laughs> Someone um, shot it with a BB gun. Somebody shot, shot it with a BB gun. I, I, at least that's what it looks like. It, it's a very small whole tear in the and it goes through it looks like it actually goes into the game i'm not really sure is there a picture online of it anywhere oh yes there is okay. a picture on nintendo age i'm sure i'm gonna link it to the podcast description so people can look at it <laughs> uh, it's uh, your avatar right now i think if it's not i can make it <laughs> probably the worst thing about it is it actually last year or maybe it was earlier this year I had somebody offer to buy it, and I was going to sell it, and it fell off of the shelf where it was, (laughs) and I don't know if if you know VGA games very well, but on the top of where the game is, there is a a piece of plastic, plexiglass, whatever, acrylic, whatever it is, that actually holds the game down so you can see the label, where it, it gives the game name and the serial number and the grade. There's actually a piece of acrylic right underneath that that holds the game to the bottom of the case. Well, when the game fell off of my TV stand, a good six feet from the top to the ground, it broke that piece, so there's now a loose piece of acrylic inside the VGA case. So not only is the game crappy, but the case holding the game is crappy. Yes. Perfect. When did you uh, kind of start collecting games? On and off over the years. When I was, gosh, how old was I? Nineteen twenty, kind of had my first real job. <laughs> what? I, uh, I and that's not really when I started collecting, but I, I, that's when I really realized that I missed it. And I got a Nintendo, and I got a couple hundred games, probably one hundred and fifty, two hundred, and and had some fun. And then, oh, the PlayStation Two came out, and I traded them all in and bought a PlayStation Two. And then a few years later, my wife and I got married, lived in an apartment, and I started having fun, uh, you know, going to flea markets and thrift stores and looking for games, and started collecting Nintendo games again. But, like I do over the years, I ended up selling them off again when we found out we were having a daughter, and I needed to have medical co-pays and hospital bill payments, and sold all my games. So I really collected on and off. I really got serious about it probably 2010 after I really got to know a lot more people at Nintendo Age and became, met a lot of wonderful people, made a lot of friends. So 2010 is what I really say, kind of the beginning of when I really collected versus kind of having a casual interest in it. You joined Nintendo Age pretty early on, didn't you? Uh, July of 2007. 
Oh, wow. What, uh, how did you wind up finding the website? There was a thread on DigitPress. I was a member of DigitPress back in 2006. I actually joined it because there was a, uh, a sealed stadium events that went for auction back in mid to late 2006. I don't know if you remember that at auction, but the first complete in the box stadium events that I had ever seen for sale or for auction. I watched it. There was a DigiPress thread on it, so I joined the site. Found a link from there to Nintendo Age. Kind of just read the site. Didn't really join until, you know, eight, nine months later when uh, the site was locked down and you had to be a member to read it. Um, oh. So once that happened, I was like, okay, I, you know, I need to join this site. So I only joined the site. Because I had to. And now some of your best friends are from it, huh? Yep. Many of them. Kevin, <laughs> Dane, Randy, Jason, Kenneth, Amanda. I could name them for days. Brian, the one I've only met one time in, in actual real life. <laughs> so you've played a, sort of a large role in the homebrew community over the years with, with the homebrew world champs and you did some support work for retro usb and just promoting things at camp out and whatnot but is it true that you were the sole reason that leisure suit larry exists uh you'll have to ask kevin that one all i can say is that for at least four maybe five years i bugged him about that game yes you're the only reason it exists <laughs> Kevin's early programming days, he had a, he would work on a game and put it to the back burner and, and hand me a ROM and it would sit in a folder and every now and then I would fire it up and be like, Kevin needs to finish this. And well, he did. And what, what would you send me a message on? Oh no. Hey, well, it's the messenger. <laughs> aim. Oh, I swear you and guys. You're, uh, you're hidden in the game somewhere, aren't you? I am hidden in the game. Says the man who programmed it. Spoiler alert. <laughs> We're not going to tell you where. I tested that game, and I still remember stumbling upon it and just being like, who's this guy? I don't quite get this joke. But now I know that guy. Well, it's fun. It's one of the, the better Nintendo games, in my opinion. Uh, what would you say is your uh, favorite? Well, let's do... Uh... Homebrew or original? Let's do both. How about that? My favorite original Nintendo game would... It would be hard to pick one, but if I had to like live with one game left only, it would probably be Wario's Woods. Really? I love that game. Wario's Woods? Wario's Woods. It oh, takes... there's a first for everything. I'm a shooter guy, really. Vertical shooters are my favorite genre of game Gunak is really high up on my list of favorite games and I didn't even play it ever until 2014 it was the first time I'd ever played that game and I love it I, I, I spent some time on it but Wario's Woods really as a gamer to me is 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 challenging because there's advanced strategies on moving the pieces and, and completing your stacks and it's just it's a challenge homebrew wise 
It's technically a port, so I don't know if you count it or not. But in 2010, 2011, uh, someone in Japan released a game called Blade Buster. And I have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours playing that game. It only has a three-minute mode and a five-minute mode, and you can beat the whole game in five minutes. But it's really just a scoring attack, but I have soaked weeks and weeks and weeks into that game. And it would definitely be my favorite homebrew. Uh, if we're not talking about ports, then I don't know, because that's when it gets challenging. Because there's, so there's so many great homebrews that I hate to just throw Blade Buster, but I love that game. So who is your favorite homebrewer of all time? So, oh no. Let's uh, let, let, let's preface the question with the question: Are we talking about gaming, their programming wise, or just you know personality? You can answer that question however you like, as long okay. as the answer is not me. My favorite homebrew programmer would probably be Rob Bryant. Okay. Simply because that man is an animal in person. And mm-hmm. will do things that will just boggle one's mind. <laughs> did he did he pee off a balcony or something one time? The first time I met Rob, we were in Knoxville in 2008. And we there was a Nintendo Age Expo there. And after the expo, we all made it, met at a steak and ale place, I believe it was. Uh-huh. Um, closed the bar down. So then we went back to my hotel room to play some Nintendo games and... They could finish drinking, and Rob decided to try to pee to onto his own car <laughs> from the sixth floor of a Comfort Suites, I believe it was, uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he failed. He was about four feet short, so about the width of the sidewalk. <laughs> he couldn't get the stream enough, and he felt like a failure because he could not pee on his own car. Uh, I love it. So you said you had a different answer for your favorite homebrew programmer? Sure. That one, if we're talking about in terms of games, Rob makes some fun games and I enjoy them, but I've actually had more fun playing Kevin, your games, over the years. Oh, I knew it. Simply because Frogger is the game that I have the most time into that's not Playbuster. Yeah. I got to beta test Frogger and I probably soaked... 150 hours into the game and really enjoyed it and then after frogger you went through that spell where you didn't really release any games for a while but you started a bunch mm-hmm. and i had a lot of fun with that and uh, to me that probably is is key to why I, I think you're probably my favorite programmer simply because i really had a bunch of fun in the early days when you really weren't releasing stuff but you were just messing around with games well i do have to thank you for all the the help and motivation you gave me over the years because you you are the reason that a lot of these games got to the point where they are, so thank you. Thank you for finishing them because they've been great. Well, some of them still need to get finished. <laughs> Gatsby. No, 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 no. The, if Kevin's going to make another game, let's see if I still have the ROM. <laughs> Probably got some weird name. Oh, it does. He's got my early folder. I think half of Nintendo Age has your early folder. Yeah, thanks to thanks to old uh, Paul there. Hey, don't blame me. <laughs> Lord. 
Oh. Uh, yep, Unicorn. So you hosted the Nintendo Age campout for a number of years, which was sort of a just giant gathering at your place. But at that event, there was uh, quite a bit of homebrew presence, wasn't there? Every year from the first year on, uh, well, the first year was a little a little different because, um, you know, 2009, the homebrew scene was really in its infancy other than a few smaller releases not to diminish them. I think Frogger, was Frogger out at that point, Kevin? It came out in 09, but I don't think it was out when the campout, because the campout's usually in July, right? So the first one was in August, but yeah, July, June, July. I think Frogger came out in September. Okay. Bunny Boy's always been a, a big supporter, so every campout, he always sent us just a box of goodies for stuff to test or play or try. Whatever we wanted to do with it, he didn't really care. So we got a couple of different homebrews. Um, The second year, Big JT brought his Assimilate one year when he was working on programming the game, but he hadn't. He had a dev level, which was supposed to be a really challenging level, um, which it was. Um, Actually, that was 2010. I remember now because I got uh, drunk on tequila and decided that I was going to beat the level, and he told me that you couldn't beat the first level because it really wasn't meant to be beaten. So I uh, took that as a challenge and spent an hour and a half drinking tequila and slamming a controller on the game ground trying to beat John's dev level. I think I did, but I really don't remember. <laughs> woke up on my back porch with my t-shirt as my pillow, so... That's about right. The homebrews have really, though, honestly always been a big part just because it's a great time to showcase to some of the the members really at the time didn't know a lot about the homebrews and and didn't really realize what was possible. So, you know, every year something happened, somebody brought a new game or shared a new game. You know, Rob used it one year as a a test for his uh, the Mad Wizard because that was infuriating. <laughs> I remember spent we we spent a couple of hours with a piece of paper and a pencil uh, mapping out the game and where you went. That was uh that was pretty neat. We felt like we were ten again with paper and pen before the days of the internet when you actually had to play a game and and, and map where you were going and how you got there. And, what was down there, and order which you needed to do things. Well, is that it? Yeah, that could you be it. Question? Uh, is there anything that you kind of? Is there anything that you you wanted to like get out there that you think is important for other people to know? Or no, not really. I mean, the thing that I would say the most is, uh, especially the Homebrew World Championships. It was it was a fun project. We hope one day to make a second one. Um, I would like the second one because you had the NWC and then you had the NCC for the Nintendo Campus Challenge. So we're trying to work on a a sequel. Is it going to happen? I don't know. We've talked about it for four years now and nothing's happened, but (laughs) maybe somebody will hear this and bug the right person and we'll get back onto it. But until then, game on. 
Yep, so that was uh, Paul talking about the Nintendo World Championship cartridge. No, no, the Homebrew World Championship cartridge. Um, And like I said, it was modeled after the original Nintendo World Championship, uh, which was a contest that Nintendo started uh, back in 1990. Um, And they had... In 29 cities, they got together and they invited everyone in three different age groups, uh, 11 and below, 12 to 17, and then 18 and over. Um, And people would come and they'd stand in line and they would try to get the high score on this competition cartridge that combined three of Nintendo's games from the original NES. They had Super Mario Brothers, the original one. You had to collect 50 coins uh, and then that would move you on to Rad Racer which would pick, I think, one of two different tracks. And depending on, you know, what your point total was at the end of Super Mario Brothers, that would determine which of the two tracks on Rad Racer would load. And then after you beat that track, it would load Tetris. And for 6 minutes and 21 seconds, you would play these three games. And the object was to get to Tetris as quickly as humanly possible and to just kick ass at Tetris. And that's where you would really, really get the high scores. And someone named Thor, who both of us have had the pleasure of meet. And come on, if you have a badass name like Thor, you have to be a badass. He's a strapping gentleman. Yeah, really, really nice guy. Uh, He won the 12 to 17 age group. um, And he actually became the spokesperson for a company named Chimerica, who did some unlicensed NES cartridges, which was a little funny. But... um, yeah, he, he was sent overseas. He promoted these wow. games. He actually won uh, some kind of car. Like, he won a car for winning this contest, um, which was funny because, well, I guess it wasn't funny. At the time, his family was was not doing well. Um, so this car to them was, was a godsend. I think they ended up selling it and, like, uh, using the money just to survive as a family. But anyway, Paul took the idea for this competition cartridge and said, you know what? I'm going to find homebrews and I'm going to get with these developers and we're going to put together this competition cartridge. And I think it'll do well. And I think it'll be fun. And, uh, honestly, I think that he pulled off sort of, I mean, I don't want to say a miracle, but I mean, it, it, it wound up working really, really well. So yeah, Paul told us a bit about the history and everything, but I guess we should probably take some time and go through each of the games since uh, a lot of folks probably haven't played them, and yeah. they each kind of have their own strengths. So part of the thing with the uh, Nintendo World Champs was that each game sort of had different goals and they related in different ways. You weren't just you know running through three levels of Mario, you were running, racing, and puzzling. Mm-hmm. And so you want to take the first game, or you want to go... Every other one. Uh, we can do every other one, as long as I remember the order. <laughs> the first one was Seagull's Revenge, right? Yeah, yeah. Why, why don't I guess I'll take Seagull unless you want to talk about Frogger in the end. No. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Seagull's Revenge, it was done by James Todd. Uh, it goes by ZZap. Actually, two of the games on here are done by, by James he was uh, sort of one of the key members of the AVS scoreboard project later, but way back when he did the, the Seagull game, and you just fly along the top of the screen, and you press the button, and you, and you poop, and you try to hit uh, <laughs> little like characters on the screen, and they're actually 
uh, Nintendo Age forum people, you you can hit Dane, who was the founder of the website, Uncle Tusk, who does boxes and manuals for a lot of homebrew things. And I think Pirates on there. Two yeah, other and it, you could tell it was very much. I mean, it was a community effort to put this out, and and Paul is really close. You know, back then it was a lot smaller than it is now, uh, member wise. So. Paul was really close to a lot of these people putting this out. So uh, putting all of these members in Seagull's Revenge was was very nice. I think it's a nice tribute. Well, it was used for a couple different things, the Nage Hunt and then also the Halloween one. But this version, like when you start up the Homebrew World Champs, this is the first thing you're doing within like you press the start button and boom, go. Like, And you want to uh, knock down all, all five or six people as fast as possible so you can move on to the next game and go yeah. get it. Well, and we should mention if you miss someone, it respawns. Oh them yeah, all, right? it does. Yeah, that so you have to killer. poop on all of them without missing. And I did the music for it, but we won't get into that. Oh, I guess we will because we're gonna play that music in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the second game is Slappin. Yep. Um, and Slappin was done by Michael Swanson. Is that his name? Am yeah. I getting that right? Yeah, okay, yeah. just making sure I'm not screwing that up. Um, who went by the name, the very pleasant name of Mario's Right Nut on Nintendo Age. Um, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in person. Very quiet. Um, very unlike his uh, online presence, I thought. Um, but super, super sweet guy. Um, he actually did a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, tu- there's a series of tutorials he did on Nintendo Age to teach uh NES programming. Um, but in this game, it's sort of uh, not a tower defense, but um, you have basically a gun in the middle of the screen that you can shoot um, to each corner, up, down, you know, all around the screen. And enemies are sort of closing in on your gun, and you have to slap those buttons as fast as you can uh, to kill them. And you have, I think, how many enemies do you have to kill to move on? 50. Is it 50? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it gets pretty intense. Oh, it gets real intense because if you clear them all without getting hit, you get a double score. Mm. So that can make her... It's like 200,000 uh, extra points from doing it perfectly, but it is really difficult to to do well. And then after you kill 50 of those, it leads into... Chunk Out, another yes. game by James Todd. And this was sort of his sort of great puzzle game. It came out on the Game Boy and some other stuff, but you have... Uh, square and it's filled with uh, red squares, green squares, blue squares, red, blue, green, and then red circles. And anytime that two are connected, you can hit those two and they'll disappear and then everything will sort of shift around. And the trick is to get as many things as close together as you can so that way instead of doing two you can clear you know 50 at once and your your points jack up because of that yeah and it's funny when we were putting this together we didn't we didn't really know at the time you know how you know the strategies people were going to be coming up with to to get through the competition cartridge but this sort of became um the point where the player has to make a decision do do i take the time to play chunk out smartly and and actually try to look at the colors and try to group them and you know press a on them you know at the right time to get the biggest number of you know like colors as i can or do i just spam a and try to get through chunk out as fast as i can to move on to uh, the next games 
Well, it's funny when a few years ago I was part of a video, a weekly video game night, and this game, the HBWC, was played every week. You got one shot at it, and you we had like a chalkboard, and you put your you know score up there, and it was it was rather competitive. And I was the one in the group who discovered if you just took your time with Chunk Out, you could rack up way more points than with any other game on there. Hmm. And so, yes, I was on the leaderboard for like a week. And then we <laughs> realized that I'm not good at Twitch games and it's back to the bottom. But for a while, I was at the top. And that leads us to NES Virus Cleaner by Sly Dog Studios, our good friend Robert Lee Bryant. Man, this is one of my favorite games, but um, this game was the bane of my existence because it's so hard. Like, I think I was always giving him a hard time when we were putting this together because I thought that he picked way too hard of a level to include in this game. But I think in hindsight that he did a really, really good job with this level because it is tough, but you have to stay patient. Because the, the purpose of this game is to basically collect viruses and clean them off the board. And while you're moving around with this little character, there's little lightning bolts you know, moving around the screen and you have to dodge them. And if you get hit by the lightning, it sort of evaporates you and you respawn. Um, but if you stay patient, which I can't do because I want to hurry up and get to Frogger, um, <laughs> man, it's just, it's good. I like that game. You don't really get any points from them. It's it's more you're trying to get through that game as fast as possible so you can get to the big big bonus, which is the very last game, uh, yes. Kevin's Frogger. And you, with that one, it's like with Tetris where you just have as much time as you have left, you just get to go the whole time. And mm-hmm. you're trying to get as far as you can and score as many points. And it's... Um, I'm not very good at Frogger, so I can, you know, I don't really have a lot of rush to get there. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, then you got, you're trying to catch the Lady Frog, you're trying to get all the bonuses because everything's multiplied. And I forget how is it multiplied, though. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but I, I, I think the, multipli- the multiplier in Frogger was the highest. So, yeah. you know, the, the faster you can get to Frogger and the further you get in Frogger, you know, the higher the ceiling is for your point total did we want to talk about the bug that someone found oh you can if you want (laughs) someone found out that if you pause the game in uh in nes virus cleaner uh and let the timer go past the six minutes and 21 seconds if you unpause it you can play forever um so paul liked to do that because he always was trying to beat level four and five in frogger and in the version of Frogger in the competition cartridge, you have unlimited lives. So Paul would pause it, let it get past six minutes, 21 seconds, and then get to Frogger and then just practice (laughs) the rest, the rest of the time. Well, another thing with the HBWC is if you press reset, it will reset the game, but you, there's no, the timer doesn't reset. So you can play endlessly. You can play for like 20 minutes and not, it's never going to go to that ending screen. Uh, for those that don't want to experience a lot of frustration the way that some of us have. But that uh, leads us to music, right? You want to talk about music now? Oh, you, do you want to talk about music? You're the music master, not me. Well, just briefly. So let's get into the music from Seagull's Revenge a little bit. Um, a lot of you people know that before 
uh, I programmed for the NES. I was actually uh, sort of a, a musician. I, I did a lot of music for, for some projects in the community. Um, back then, there weren't a lot of projects that were coming out, obviously, but uh, they, were, they were a lot smaller, and, and people were just looking for you know some music to put over the gameplay. So um, the music I did for Seagull's Revenge was one of the first pieces I ever wrote. Um, so I was just sort of figuring out you know, the, the system and, and how you can make different sounds with it. Um, so I, I thought that I came up with a pretty strong melody. Um, the counter melody is not that great, but what I like most about it is, uh, what I did for the, the percussion, you know, all the drums. Um, so take a listen here and, uh, see what you think. This is the music from Seagull's Revenge. So the five games then, they they kind of each interrelate. In Seagull, you're trying to, you know, get your perfect shots and go as fast as possible, not waste time. Slapping, you're trying to get that perfect score regardless of time. Chunk out, you know, you got to make that decision whether you're going to go fast or slow, try to get all those points, and sometimes the pieces on that one just do not fall in the right places. And, you know, do you hit reset or don't hit reset, hit power? Or do you, you know, just power through? And then you got Virus Cleaner that's just going to suck your time no matter what and really give you nothing in return. All to get to Frogger, to where you want to score big, multiply those points, and, you know, do as well as you can. And so that, that the different combinations of things works really well. And there's, you know, five games on this, which is two more than the NWC. How do you find, Kevin, that the HBWC compares to the official NWC? Well, I think there's a little bit more variety, um, and that, of course, you know, it's it's beneficial that there are more games uh, than the original NWC. Is it good? Bad? Do you like it? Do you not? I love it. I I mean, even if I wasn't part of its creation, I think that we pulled off something special. Um, the games all are fun, and I think that. None of them sort of overstay their welcome. You know, you're you're 
you're playing Seagull's Revenge and how long can you play a game where you're pooping on someone and it still be fun. But there's that challenge of you have to hit all of them or you don't move on, you know? So there's, there's, you know, as a competitive gamer, and I, I assume that anyone playing a competition cartridge is, is trying, you know, have a, has a little bit of competition in them, um, competitiveness. Um, it It's fun trying to, to poop on six things without missing. And it's also nice, too, because it gives you a taste of five, well, gives you a taste of four different uh, full released home, fully released homebrews. Uh, Seagull mm-hmm. really never got its, its own game for such obvious reasons. But yeah, it's a nice way to... Yeah, actually, they're all out of print now. But <laughs> No, Chunk is wow. still in print. Is it? Yeah, and you can get Frogger on the 4-in-1. Chunk Out's in print, but it's never in stock, Brian. <laughs> and Slappin' and Virus Cleaner are both out. But yeah, if, I mean, it's a good exposure to the world of homebrew. And it does work really well as a competition cart. You know, you're not going to get a... 20 hour adventure out of it but a game to play with some friends or to challenge yourself it it succeeds rather well yeah and i don't even think you necessarily have to be a fan of homebrew nes games to find it enjoyable i mean you can you can have a party with with dudes who you know play call of duty or whatever and and if you just sit back and drink some beers there can be a lot of fun you know being had from the, the competitive side of that yeah, I mean it's that well done, and the the just the combinations right. It's the levels, everything. Uh, if someone wanted to buy this, is it still available? This one is. Uh, there was that first uh, run of things that Paul mentioned, that the, the limited ones, and then it's been on sale on RetroUSB.com for a number of years now, and still in stock, still ready to go. There's no box or manual, but every purchase does go to uh, help out the site. Uh, the Nintendo Age mm-hmm. site. Absolutely. Um, so as you know, each week we uh, ask you guys if you have any questions to feel free to write them in. And this week you guys have come through in spades. Um, we got two really, really good questions. Um, and we wanted to sort of touch on those right now. Uh, the first question uh, was the effect of ROM releases on sales. Ha- ha- typically... We as homebrewers, you know, we release our games on cartridge with box and manual um, and sort of, you know, try to fulfill the needs of collectors to be able to put these games on their shelves. But a lot of people just want to play the games and not a lot of homebrewers just try to sell the ROM. Why do you think that is, Bo? Um, well, I think the, the precedent for, you know, from the late 90s up until... The present is that if you're going to release the ROM, you just release the ROM. You don't try to profit off of it mm-hmm. in most cases. I mean, the homebrew scene is closely tied with emulation. Uh, you have to have an emulator to play and test your games, the forums, you know, whatnot. And so they figure, you know, all these ROMs have been pirated and passed around. Anybody would do the same stuff, same thing with their stuff. And, and there's just that general feeling that you're making something to show, not making something to make money off of. It's only once you start to get into things like the costs of physical production that that, that then starts to become a real factor, or it started to become a real factor in the past. Yeah, I think every time I've released a game, I get messages from people saying, 
you know, I really want to play your game, but I don't want to drop, you know, 60 bucks to play it. Like, why don't you just sell the ROM on your website for a few bucks? I'd be happy to support you. But like you mentioned, um, one, we're making these to sort of put out into the world physically, you know, to be part of something, a community, you know, something on someone's shelf beside, you know, the games of our childhood. To us, that means something. But secondly, like you mentioned, piracy really is a big deal. Um, And us not selling the ROMs isn't going to stop it because, as you mentioned, all these games are probably out there to download. Um, But if we can find a way to maybe, we don't want to encourage it, you know, if we if we sold it on our website ROM by itself, it would be out there way faster for people to download. And and then who would want to even pay sixty bucks to to buy the game if it's freely available? Well, you're also in the situation of if you publicly release it and give it to people, there are those people who will burn it to a cartridge and then resell it. And if you're also still trying to sell a real copy of it, it Gets a, or if you just wanted to discontinue the run and kind of give people something unique and special with that one-and-done attitude, like, it gets tricky because they're basically bootlegging the thing that you've given to the community. Yeah, and people that aren't necessarily in the know of what we're doing, you know, a lot of these people that make reproductions, they're going to stumble upon a ROM and they're going to think, oh, I should put this on a cartridge and sell it, not necessarily taking into account that oh someone actually put hours into making this i remember you sent me a link one night of someone selling sneak and peek on etsy or something yeah yeah, and i was like yeah and i was like what so i sent the guy a message like what the hell are you doing like i made these games why are you selling them and he wrote me right back, you know, he, he had no idea that we were out here selling these games of our creation. He just thought that it was another game that he could make a reproduction of, and and he never stopped to think that, you know, we were real people out here trying to not necessarily make a living, but, you know, trying to receive some sort of compensation for these games that we've put hours into making. I know the, uh, I think it was the Mojan twins, the some Spanish homebrewers, was it them? Uh, whoever did the uh, Genesis, uh, it's, it's a light cycle game, basically. Actually, the Genesis guy who did Poppy Commando as well, they'd put out sort of finished versions of these games with the intent that then they were going to make a cartridge and sell it to people. And in between the like month or two where they were trying to figure that out, uh, sure enough, people were pirating their stuff, selling it all over the internet, and they just there was no point at that point for them to sort of go through the process of having a a real release and then of course they were denied that sort of that feeling of being able to put something out there that's sort of permanent into the world yeah so you know i'm I'm sure there are people that if we offered the rom for sale by itself they would download it for their own purposes and you know not distribute it but i think the bad in this situation sort of outweighs the good potential. Do you think it affects sales, though? Which was the actual question we were asked before we sort of got on those soapboxes. <laughs> I think it does, to okay. a certain extent. I mean, I I don't think... I think there are people that would buy it no matter what. You know, if, if I release the game for free on Nintendo Age, I think there are still 
a number of people who would want to support me and and buy the physical copy. But I would say that it is my guess that I'm just going to put a number out there like 33%. I think my sales would go down 33% Mm -hmm. if I... If, if the game was out there to download freely. And with all of this, there's really no way to know like concrete numbers because every release is different. You can have a game that sells 20 copies. Well, would a ROM release have really affected that? Probably not. And you have another game that can sell, you know, hundreds or, or more. And would a ROM release affect that? And if so, to what degree? And how would it be different? Like... Every game is just so different. It's not like it was back in the licensed era where they were guaranteed to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies and move on to the next. One of the few ways that we do have of sort of gauging how many people would pay to play on just a strictly digital release is that with a lot of Kickstarters, people will offer a very, very low... uh, digital release only and they really don't sell very well when i did spookatron uh there were six backers out of you know 130 or so that took the pc only version and that that was it so like to, wow, that's a really good point and that was you know ten dollars versus the next tier was almost 40 it was 38 like that's quite a difference that's a quarter of the cost but nobody wanted it so <laughs> yeah, and in, in that same line of thought, you know, when I release a game and have a cartridge only option and a complete in box option, I probably sell less than ten cartridge only, where I'm selling you know hundreds of complete in box. So even though it's cheaper, it seems like most people who are wanting to buy these things are wanting the full package. You know, no matter sort of the cost. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's different, uh, and every game's different. It's just sort of... Well, I mean, it's true. We're, we're sort of just trying to figure out things as we go, and there's, there's really n- no definite way to do it. We're, we're doing the best we can, and I think we're doing it the right way. So just looking real fast, um, Twin Dragons, which we, we've talked about before, had 329 backers. 30 people chose just the digital only. That's, wow. I mean, I guess that's, what, a tenth? Yeah. Yeah, 10%. Anyways, uh, that first question was from Nathan uh, Tolbert. 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 I, he told me, and I just wasn't Is paying. he French? No, he's, he's from, like, <laughs> Illinois. Um, our second question here is from Nick Pruitt, and he was wondering... So after the Nerdy Nights, where do you go? Well, that's a good question. As some of you know, the Nerdy Nights will get you, will help you build Pong, and then it yes. kind of just stops. So Kevin, where did you, where'd you go from the Nerdy Nights? Well, um, my whole thing after the Nerdy Nights was, you know what, I'm going to think of a project, and I'm just going to go for it, and when I run into problems, I'm going to just ask people directly along the way. And I think the biggest sort of hurdle, and I think the thing that opened up, uh, you know, the most progress right away was um, figuring out how 
a game engine actually sort of runs, you know, where you have different game states because I had Pong, but I didn't know how to make a freaking title screen and how to go from the title screen into the game. So being able to learn how to separate, you know, different states of the game engine, um, I think was, was the first thing that I moved on to from the nerdy nights and the way I did that. And I think I've mentioned this in the past was I just jumped on AOL instant messenger and I found a direct way to communicate with bunny boy directly to where I could just ask him questions directly to him and get a response, you know, whenever he got around to it. Um, and that's how I started progressing with programming. I had a direct feed and I would just ask him question after question. How do I do this? How do I do that? How do I, how do I make the frog animate? How do I make the rose, you know, scroll and just piece by piece by piece, I just started learning and then light bulbs just started going off. And before you knew it, I've released nine games. Just like that. You just yep. wake up one morning and you got nine games under your belt. Knock out a game, knock out another game. How did you, uh, how did you do it? Uh, my path was sort of similar, except of course I went to you and asked you a bunch of questions and I ignored you. Uh, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> no, you were really good, but I would write you those like 10 page emails and I think it just overwhelmed you. Yeah. And so I decided for my first project, because I wanted to do a Zelda-like, I decided that I would do Adventure for the Atari, the 2600, which was a game that I'd never played, like never even fired up. I just knew that it was very basic looking and it had sort of the same movements of Zelda. And I was like, well, you know what, that I'll look into that. And so I asked Kevin a bunch of stuff. He helped me figure out uh, some things like collisions and uh, some object stuff. And at the same time, I started reading a set of tutorials by the guy who did Slappin', uh, Michael Swanson. And they kind of almost, not directly, but pretty close, like jump from where the Nerdy Knights would have gone. And I know Brian would have probably gone many other directions. But Michael took it into into a Zelda-like, and I was like, oh, well, that fits really well, because it's got, you know, everything that I need. It's got, you know, the four directions and animations and separate weapons. And I just kind of plowed through those over the course of, uh, you know, a year or so. And they're, they're really, like, dense. I, I remember I took uh, his first lesson and dumbed it down to, like, just be able to do the most basic thing in it. And it... I had to separate down like 14 steps just to get it to where it was like, hey, it's just loading a sprite. And then I built <laughs> back in everything on top of that. And, and that's sort of how I learned was just picking that apart and trying to make it work and having that that project in my sites that I wanted to do. And it's funny how different uh, thematically their tutorials are. Bunny Boys were always so like professional the type of thing that you would read you know in a textbook and then michael's were like so do this because it's fun and do this if you want to and it's like it's just so informal it, it always made me laugh plus add in foul language <laughs> <laughs> but yeah they do definitely have different approaches and then from there like between going through those tutorials i could finally start to go to places like nestev or even read some of the questions that people had asked in the past on nintendo age and they started to make sense it was like oh so that's what you know i know what this is but i don't know what this is but i can sort of bridge that gap by the result of what i'm seeing and so it was it was pretty nice i i 
really recommend Michael's tutorials as a place to go from the Nerdy Nights and also asking people directly. Yeah, so I guess the, you know, too long didn't read uh, synopsis of, of the answer is think of a project that you want to do, you know, within reason, if it's single screen or a couple screens, you know, you're not going to do a, a scrolling platformer right away. I mean, you could, I guess, but we would recommend maybe, you know, lowering your scale a little bit. But then just go for it, you know, figure out what the first thing is that you need to do to get this project happening. And if you don't know how to do it, ask us and just learn piece by piece. Before you know it, you'll have the game done. Well, that's another thing, too, is if you choose that, if you have like, I want to make Zelda in your head, but you dumb it down to like, first, I'm going to make this thing that sort of gets most of the pieces like gameplay wise, then it really is pretty useful. Mm -hmm. For sure. So yeah, keep writing questions in. We're happy to discuss them, talk about them. It gives us a lot to sort of remember when it wasn't quite... I'm not going to say it's easy now, but like there was God, no. <laughs> so much that first year because I was doing it like just in my free time that I sort of gloss over. It was like, oh, I spent like two months on that one tutorial. Right. That, this is why people don't just get it, you know, every day. Yeah, it's definitely nice reflecting. So if you have any questions, uh, we'll repeat at the end of the episode, but send them in to nesassemblyline at gmail.com and we will answer them on a future episode. Yeah, so a lot has been happening in the homebrew community lately. It, it's funny, you go that first part of the year, the first few months of the year, are like a lot of activity and there's usually like sort of a dead spot and then suddenly like there's like five releases at once and it... Mm -hmm. There's no rhyme or reason to how any of this happens. So we're actually here with Greg, who is part of the team that has put out the Haunted Halloween games over the last couple of years, Haunted Halloween 85 and Haunted Halloween 86. Uh, they go by the name Retrotainment Studios, and they, they've sort of got a whole team that puts these games together. And about what, two, three weeks ago, there was an image or a series of images, an animated GIF, GIF, Kevin Jeff. I knew you were going to I will me fight you. <laughs> uh, uh, it started floating around some of the forums about a new game that they have that's coming up, and it plays once. It doesn't loop, so you got to sort of really be paying attention, and it shows uh, you see sort of this, like, safari guy descending on a rope. You see a map screen. You see some sort of, like, jungle, gun flash, and then nothing coming soon. <laughs> so we are here with greg who uh, may or may not be willing to unveil some mysteries about that greg how you doing i'm doing great gentlemen how you doing excellent yep quite good i gotta say that there's some cool parallax scrolling going on in that in that little gif uh yeah that's all uh zach um you know, if you guys had a chance to take a look at 86, that's when we really started getting into that sort of thing. And now we're just all about it. We want to put it everywhere. Yeah, why not? It looks awesome. So Zach did the art on that? I was I was curious. Zach's the main, he's like the lead visual artist is, you know, that's how we word it. Um, he does pretty much all of the background stuff. So, I mean, you know, everything that we do is uh, largely a collaborative effort, so we all kind of get to chime in on things. Um, but then, like, sometimes I'll bring him concept work or Tim or Thomas or whoever, but then Zach makes it look right. 
So do you guys have the same team back that was that's been doing the Halloween games, the five of you? Yep, yep. It's the same five guys. Uh, myself, Damien, is the uh, master coder. Um, Zach, like I said, does the backgrounds. Thomas largely does the music. And uh, Tim and I do a lot of the collaboration for game ideas. And um, I do, I guess I do the majority of the sprite work. And Thomas is picking up some of that. And Tim's learning some of that as well. So, you know, we're really trying to, like, uh, hone what we're doing and, and improve in any way possible. It's pretty cool that this is like the, is this the third game that you guys have all done together? Yeah, this will be uh, number three. So we're, we're really excited because this is going to be kind of a, a new thing for us. Obviously, like uh, the 85 was totally new. We had no clue what we were doing. And uh, then 86 was pretty much just like, okay, we understand haunted now let's make 85 but but try to improve in every way and uh now that we're making this game it's kind of a clean slate uh we're gonna explore some new things um without getting into like too many techie details you know we've learned a little bit from uh the development process in the past two games and um kind of like what we were talking about parallaxing is stuff is, is something now that we just want to go crazy with um also you know potentially working in a little bit of uh a little bit of subtle nuances into the parallaxing so that we can make it look even more like parallaxing instead of just straight up splits on screen you know do a little bit of uh chr tile rotation in there to get some things moving the other direction and stuff like that you know just try to expand in every way possible well, it looks like you've progressed a lot i mean this is your guys are really pushing things to the limits, it looks like to me. Uh, well, yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, a lot of this is Damien. Uh, you guys know him as Tepples, and he also now goes by Pino or Pino Batch, so uh, he's got a couple names going out there. But, uh, yeah, you know, he's he's the mastermind behind the code. Um, we kind of just have to work with him and and figure out what can and can't be done, how much we're going to be taxing the CPU at any given time. So, okay, we know, well, we can't really have many enemies here. We have a window for two enemies. Um, so we just have to be really strategic about how we do these things. It certainly helps that you guys have one of the best, you know, NES coders existing today. So good job oh, there. Un <laughs> undoubtedly. Uh, he is, like I tell people, I think that his brain just works in 6502 assembly. It's he just he just gets it completely. So technical and design details aside, what is it we're actually seeing with this uh, Safari guy? Uh, so the game is called Full Quiet. Um, it's it's not so much Safari. He's more of he's a guy that he wakes up uh, one morning, and you guys will see this in the uh, Kickstarter video that we're doing. Uh, he wakes up one morning and he finds that his son is missing and something has taken him. So he sets out on a mission to find his son and he's venturing out into the forest uh, where he'll encounter all sorts of uh, creatures and beasts and whatnot and uh, go through different, different terrains, different landscapes, all to figure out what's going on and find his son. So is it a beat-em-up like the Haunted games, or are you guys venturing into some new territory? No, absolutely uh, no beat-em-up in this game. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a shooter, 
but I mean, like a, like a Contra style shooter in that it's 2D, it's plat. Oh, wow. There'll be a little bit of platforming, but um, it's going to be heavy on puzzle solving and sort of. I guess the approach that we keep thinking is that we want it to be uh, a a much more like visual, audible. Uh, temporal cognitive experience whereas haunted is pretty like left to right straightforward beat the crap out of everything that you can this you're gonna have to to think about and uh, you know it, it like we like we do it'll get a little challenging but we hope we can find the the right balance in there single player single player yeah yeah, there's only, uh, as, as far as it's planned right now, there will only be one human in the game. Uh, so what can we sort of expect in terms of uh, Kickstarter type of uh, rewards, tiers, all of that stuff? Uh, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> as we do, it's all last minute. So uh, <laughs> Tim, Tim and I, I were actually... That. <laughs> I well, I mean, I can't help it. We, you know, the the video that we did for uh 86 uh, eugene crisp video uh, that was thrown together by our buddy mikey and thomas in like two days um you know we're kind of doing it again we're just getting everything packaged up and and uh trying to get it up up on the kickstarter uh for september 1st so the tiers uh what we're thinking right now obviously we're going to try to get another uh unique shell color which uh I'm, that's one thing i'd like to hold off on because i don't want to speak too soon about it um of course we'll have classic gray but um the cib version you know cartridge version and we're thinking about a few other things that might be related to the story um you know the the story's going to be a little survival-esque you know you you have to figure out how to how to deal with the enemies and how to keep yourself alive as you go through this mission. Uh, so we're going to try to sneak a few things in that are related to that. And um, another huge aspect of this game is going to be the, like you saw the radio tower in there and like a, a ham radio. Uh, we're going to bring, we're going to, we're going to be putting that sort of stuff into the game where we're getting into like radio uh, calls and a little bit of the technology behind it. Uh, that's actually where full quiet comes from. It's a, it's a term from uh, radio relays. Oh, huh. I'm always curious where titles come from. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, so basically it's like when there's a, uh, a radio signal and it's being relayed from one station to another, they call it full quiet when there's no interference on the, on the signal itself. So we're going to kind of play off of that. It's a little bit of a, what do you call that? Like a double entendre or whatever that fancy term is. But we're, we're going to kind of play off of that a little bit to, uh, to take it in, into a little bit of an interesting direction. Are either of you guys ham radio enthusiasts? Uh, it's, it's something that, that we're all definitely into and we've really been getting into it more and more. And um, like Morse code is something that's going to be in the game. Um, you might have to learn a little bit of that. Um, but I, for me, I think personally it stems, um, my dad was a communication specialist in the, uh, in the army. So growing up, it was like, you know, we were on the walkie talkies all the time. And like, you know, I, I knew how to talk like a, like a radio, like a radio specialist, like CB radio or whatever lingo. I kind of knew all that growing up. I knew a little bit of Morse code when I was younger. We'd like use the walkie talkies and talk back and forth. So 
I'm pretty sure for me personally, that's where it comes from. I know everybody else has their own uh, personal uh, interest in this. So by the time this airs, of course, the Kickstarter is already going to be live. So you guys can go check it out. Um, but uh, and a lot of the people listening probably already have. But for those who haven't, do you have your price points already that you want to go over for just like a typical like game and box type that? Yeah, it's going to match what we did for 86, where it's going to be like 50 bucks for a cartridge only and 60 bucks for the CIB. Um, you know, like the swag bag, do a T-shirt and, and pin and stickers. People seem to like that stuff. So we're, we're just going to try to do more of that uh, based off of the feedback that we got from the last campaign. Um, the Now, we're for certain going to have a digital version of this ready uh, for a simultaneous release with the NES version. Uh, so that'll be like a, a much cheaper alternative, like a $10 tier for the digital version right off the get. Whereas last time, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to even make that happen. So we had to wait and not put it on as an, as an original tier. But, but this time it'll be there um, early for people who want to just, uh, you know, see what the game's about on, on PC and maybe either don't have the NES, uh, unfortunately, or don't, uh, don't want to, you know, shell out the money for it, which, you know, 60 bucks for a game, that's, that's a lot to ask of people. So uh, I, I fully expect, uh, you know, a lot of uh, PC downloads. Are you guys using uh, Derek's GGVM for that? Actually, no. So I, Derek and I went back and forth for a long time about this, um, trying to get it to work. And there's a few things in the way that we do extended RAM um, on our board that doesn't quite jive with it. Uh, now, I know that he could... You know, he's a smart guy. He'd definitely be able to to eventually figure this out. But we actually started working with uh, the guy that does the 3D NES. Have you guys seen that? Oh yeah, I don't think I have. Yeah, we started. It's oh, it's it's totally awesome. You know, like you you're playing your old favorite Nintendo games in in 3D. So uh, we started kind of collaborating with him to to make. Uh, our our own emulator then that we could bring all of our games to you know straight to PC and uh, you know that was obviously a process to get everything to work correctly but uh, yeah so far everything's working um, the the people that make that they're called Geode Studios and uh, yeah it's a fantastic fantastic uh, piece of software and uh, so far everything's working great for the eighty six build on PC so we're just gonna keep rolling with that. Wow, awesome! You guys have done such a such an amazing job with both the Haunted Halloween games. I I'm just super excited for this new one. Well, yeah, thank you. That's uh, you know that means a lot coming from someone like yourself who's killing it in the NES homebrew world. Well, I still haven't released a game, so don't get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> I played. It in so many ways. I I know <laughs> it's going to be there. I, I I mean, it kicked my ass in. Uh, Milwaukee, I know that's going to be a good game. Oh, that was a fun time. <laughs> fun and frustrating. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to throw the controller through that awesome monitor you had. <laughs> so your game has something in common with Battle Kid then, Bo. I mean, mission accomplished. <laughs> but, uh, it was a faulty show demo build, we'll say. I put really hard levels, like level three. So that's no like fun Like level one. <laughs> oh, level man. one is easy. You just got to get used to it. Oh, you just got to get used to it. Well, yeah. Thanks for making me look like I don't know what I'm doing. I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, thanks so much, Greg, for coming on and chatting with us. Um, you can check out their project on Kickstarter. We'll have some links in the description and stuff like that. And as always, it's great talking to you. Yeah, anytime, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Hey, you we'll bet. see you in Portland. Yes. And we'll definitely. actually have probably Greg or one of the other members of the Retrotainment team back on to talk about one of the Halloween games in October. So it won't be that long before we hear from him again. Cool. Anytime, guys. All right, take it easy. So one other thing that Greg and the Retrotainment fellows are up to, which is part of fulfilling one of their Kickstarter stretch goals from last year, is a Famicom version of the Haunted Halloween games. And those are just coming out, or they've just sort of like started leaking information on those uh, through Twitter and some unofficial things. Oh, and the Kickstarter backer surveys. And not only not only did they release the game on a Famicom cartridge, but they actually translated the text to Japanese, right? Yes, they did. Very good. Wow. I forgot about that. Crazy. Yeah, so that's also coming out. There was another uh, Famicom release coming out by the Mojon Twins, which they've done a few NES releases over the years, the Spanish fellows. Uh, what else is going on, Kevin? Well, I think Brian uh, from Retro USB is actively working on uh, the 2017 Christmas cartridge, which is a compilation cartridge of all of the previous Christmas cartridges, you know, from 20, uh, 2008 on. So it's it's got all of the Christmas games ever released on one cartridge. And the coolest part of it is that it has an LED label, right? I don't know. I'm not on Facebook. Well, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> he's created, he's put where the label normally is on an NES cartridge. He's put an LED or an LCD. I don't know if it's LCD or LED, but it's a screen that projects an image. And depending on which Christmas game you're playing, it will display that game's label. Uh, oh. It's really freaking cool consider my mind blown right now yeah i just don't know how he pulls off this nonsense it's like he just like wakes up and he's like hey what is this outlandish idea that i've come up with oh i can do that and then he does it and it's like what the hell like can i have a quarter of your brain please (laughs) brian has done many many interesting and neat projects over the years um he's known for the a Retrovision, which allows you to play Game Boy games on the NES. He's done, you know, all the Christmas cartridges. He, well, everything with Retro USB, pretty much. Including the full clone console. I know we're not supposed to say clone with the AVS, because it's way better than that. Uh, yes. The AVS it is sort of the end-all, be-all of how to play the NES or Famicom or Famicom Disk System on an HD TV. Yeah, and you've had these crappy clone systems coming out in the past, you know, for 60 bucks that'll play your NES games in HD, but they're all garbage. And Brian was so tired of that crap, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it right. So he took the time to, you know, learn all of the NES's eccentricities and... You know, he just developed this thing from the ground up using an FPGA, right? Is that what it is? FPGA? FPGA, yeah. Yeah. And so this came what out. What is that? 
I forget what it stands for, but <laughs> uh, he would know. He, again, it's yes, beyond. He would. So the ABS was released last year and been in development for several years, and so there was you know quite a bit of build up for it, and it sold out within the first few months. I think by Christmas it was sold out. Yeah, the demand. I mean, the demand was building up for so long that people were chomping at the bit. So yeah, once he said that they were ready to go they flew off the shelves yeah and then it's been on back order ever since so that's almost nine months now that is nine months of yeah people waiting for this thing you could pre-order it but you still couldn't get it and it is on its way for those who are waiting yes. anybody who's pre-ordered is you know guaranteed their one and then i would expect the remaining ones to again fly off the shelf yeah, it might even be out by the time this episode comes out, so definitely go to RetroUSB.com, click on the AVS picture. Um, I think the sale, that the pre-sale that he had is over now yeah, that they're yeah. basically almost there. But um, compared to the other good HD you know, alternatives for the NES, um, the price is outstanding. Yeah, it's what, 180 uh, I think 185. Oh yeah, because 1985 for the NES. Yeah. 185, and then like the closest uh, comparable option is like the $500 analog NT. Yeah, unless you want to modify your top loader with one of those kits. The high but, def kit. Um, yeah, the AVS is sort of an out of the box, 100% uh, compatibility uh option if you want to play on you know these new hd tvs it's got really cool features like an online scoreboard where you can upload your high scores to the nintendo age uh, scoreboard database um, you can have friends lists um, it's just really really cool it has all the sorts of customization features where you can turn on extra sprites um, you can stretch the image to whatever you need it to look like for your viewing pleasure it, it has built-in, you know, expansion sounds for Famicom games. Just really, really cool stuff. He thought of everything, including the fact that it will work with all of the NES accessories. So the ports in the front for the controllers are spaced perfectly as the original system. And it's got built-in four-player support. And not only uh, NES peripherals, but Famicom ones as well. Yeah, man, even the disk system works. So, I mean, you, you can play anything you want to in this machine, and it will look glorious on your HDTV. And other news, it's been sort of neat to see Rob, after he finished uh, his Black Box Challenge, has now jumped back to one of his old projects, so that would be Sly Dog Studios, a game called Candelabra Estacero, which is related to the Mad Wizard which we discussed, was that just geez, just last episode? Uh, I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. But yeah, he he didn't ease back into it either. He like he just dove right in. He's he's making some really good progress finishing this game up. Yeah, and if you're curious to see almost the day by day updates on it, check out his Twitter and he he posts all sorts of things. It, it's one of the neat ways to watch a project develop. Yeah, and I think you can find him at Sly Dog Studios. And he also posts them on Facebook, too. So if you're not on Twitter, uh, you can add him on Facebook and follow him there. So our music this week that uh, we'll close with comes from a man named Sergio Elisando. He yes. has released a musical cartridge called A Winner Is You. 
He's also done. Not only I'm going to stop you right there because we need to we need to highlight this fact. Not only it is is it a music cartridge, it is full audio on an NES cartridge. It's like CD quality. I mean, it's real audio coming out of your Nintendo, which is amazing. Yeah, the code for the conversion was done by Shiru, and then the actual mapper was built by Bunny Boy. And it's huge, right? Like 64 megabytes? Yeah, like no game back in the day was 64 megabytes, right? Uh, I was talking with Brian, and it looks like 64 megabytes in 1990 would have cost about $1,500. (laughs) But how big was the largest licensed game? Oh, like 512 KB. So that's, I think, 128 times the size. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The song we're going to feature from Sergio's Music Cart is uh, the DuckTales theme, right? Yeah, so Sergio's done some covers of classic NES songs, and he does them not by looking at the score for it or the, what do you call that, the music? the sheet yeah, the music. sheet music. Sheet music. There we go. Uh, but he does them from sort of memory and just from what he's, you know, as he listens, he interprets it. It's not a direct uh, slavish cover. And he plays all the instruments. You know, he, he plays the drums, the guitar, the bass, the keyboards, Every single thing that you hear in this song, he tracked by himself. Uh, so he is a super talented dude. If you ever get the opportunity to see him play in person, uh, he goes around to some of these music festivals. I know he'll be in Portland again. Um, definitely check him out if you get the chance because uh, he puts on a hell of a show. Yeah. Oh, and he does also do like chip more chiptune music, uh, but this is you know he actually plays real instruments and can do this level of stuff as well so it's it's interesting to see that give and take yep so before we play the ducktales theme for you uh we just want to thank you for tuning in uh again if you want to write in any questions you can write them into nes assembly line at gmail.com uh you can follow Bo on twitter at soul goose and i am on twitter at a ton of glaciers um definitely add us send us questions go to nintendo age sign up uh be a part of the action So is there anything else you want to touch on, Bo? That'll do it. All right, guys. See you next time. And here is the DuckTales theme by Sergio.